This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents A Master's Dissertation by Zach Twomley. Conclusion The ultimate vindication of honor is physical violence. Julian Pitt Rivers Historian and Political Scientist, 1965 Does honour answer the question of why Britain went to war? One could assert that it contributes to the other studies that have sought to answer this question. Honour was as valuable a commodity as security and imperial interests. Indeed, to someone was inseparable from these two entities. To lose honour meant to lose standing in the eyes of one's rivals, meant the mass disobedience of one's subjects, and the gauntlet of challenges, suddenly provided by rivals and friends alike, that could sense inherent weakness. Such losses incurred shame and the drop in prestige that would inevitably follow. Britain's diplomatic credibility could also be damaged, possibly threatening her ability to make alliances in Europe. Fear of such consequences had been enough, as we have seen, to mobilise some statesmen and newspapers to advocate for a certain course from an early stage. For others, the question was a more personal one, but no less significant because of that. Interventionists had been loath to claim the damage to the Empire's name that would be done if France, expectant of aid, was crushed and eliminated from the sovereign map of Europe. The question of obligation or non-obligation to France was something that those on both sides of the ideological fence grappled with. In many ways, this was a confusion of the British cabinet's own making. The people and statesmen were told that no written obligations existed, and yet the situation in place because of previous agreements suggested, or to some it automatically resulted, in obligations of an honorary, moral nature. To those opposed to war, Russia's immoral conduct and ideological backwardness loomed, while the issue of the poor and the liberal government's commitments to that sector of society 
provided alternative and additional arguments in favour of peace. The Code of Honour was certainly more overt in the arguments of the interventionists, but the arguments of the non-interventionists are in many ways more thought-provoking and remarkable because of this. Those unable to resist the force of moral arguments surrounding either the French coasts or Belgium thereafter were soon subsumed within them, as the war was reshaped by moral rationalisations and the actors were recast within good and evil roles, with propaganda to match. Yet, some individuals remained unconvinced. Sir Philip Gibbs, war correspondent and author of the post-war work, Now It Can Be Told, wrote that leaders of the nations had made use of mob passion in their policies by invoking the, quote, high-sounding watchwords of liberty, justice, honour and retribution, end quote. Similarly, Norman Angel noted that the leaders of Europe Quote, have only to produce certain words, fatherland above all, national honour, and that this had caused the millions to lose all self-control, to be completely blind as to where they are going, what they are doing, to lose all sense of the ultimate consequences of their acts. Honour was understood by these men as a powerful concept, despite their distaste for its use. Theirs was a sense of disappointment in its utilisation as a tool of emotional mobilisation. Significantly, they did not argue against its existence or strength. In the same way, anti-war Labour MP Keir Hardy derided its use when he claimed that honour was always the excuse. The very fact that such individuals detested the use of honour came largely from their experience in seeing it used before, and, for that matter, used effectively. It must also be emphasised that honour did not disappear once the war began. Having brought Britain to war, the government sought to remind the populace exactly what they were fighting for on regular occasions. This often took the form of speeches designed to appeal to the people on an emotional level. With such a goal in mind, Prime Minister Herbert Asquith appealed for war credits in the House of Commons on the 6th of August, claiming that If we had dallied or temporalised, we as a government should have covered ourselves with dishonour and we should have betrayed the interests of this country of which we are trustees. Andrew Bonner Law echoed the Prime Minister's view, claiming that It really was a question, and a question only, whether we should enter it honourably or be dragged into it with dishonour. To Andrew Bonner Law Britain's position was that of a great power engaged in a great moral struggle. Britain was fighting for the honour, and with the honour has always bound up the interest of our country. Had Britain stood by in neutrality as Belgium was invaded, Bonner Law claimed, Our position as one of the great nations of the world and our honour as one of the nations of the world would, in my opinion, have been gone. Bonner Law saw the war as one in which British honour was at stake, and had made it clear to Sir Edward Grey that he believed it would be fatal to the honour and security of the United Kingdom to hesitate, as early as the morning of the 2nd of August 1914, by which time Grey had not even managed to persuade Cabinet of the need for intervention. It would thus be fair to assert that honour held a place of high esteem in Bonner Law's estimation and that for him it was as critical a consideration as British interests or security. 
although some insisted that a citizen's well-being held more importance than all the so-called honour of the world. Views like these were soon outvoted by the majority. Secretary of State for War Lord Kitchener alluded to the sacrifices that would have to be made by the British people, but noted that such pressures would be willingly borne for the sake of our honour and for the preservation of our position in the world. The perception that Britain's honour had been at stake was even the viewpoint of the monarchy. King George V insisted in September that, had the empire over which he was sovereign remained neutral, I should have sacrificed my honour and given to destruction the liberties of my empire and of mankind. As the months wore on, German atrocities in Belgium and other grand acts of sacrifice were emphasised by the increasing capabilities of the Allies in the sphere of anti-German propaganda. Belgium had an intense effect abroad as well. One British official recorded that The people of the United States are tired of the discussion as to who began this war. The answer to the whole thing is in one word. Belgium. As late as December 1914, Gray was insisting that Belgium had to be completely restored to its pre-war state of sovereignty, for it is the one thing that is a point of absolute right and honour for us to secure. Similarly, in his negotiations with the Vatican, a British official asked Sir William Tyrrell whether, from a purely moral point of view, it would not be possible in the near future to collect all the moral forces of the Allies and wage a regular crusade to denounce the crimes of Germany and Austria. Only days later, he would proclaim that Germany stands convicted of having declared war on morality. When the German Minister for Foreign Affairs, Gottlieb von Jagow, had complained bitterly that Britain was declaring war on Germany for the sake of a scrap of paper and ending years of fruitful friendship, Edward Gottschen, Britain's ambassador to Germany, noted in response that We were bound in honour to do our best to preserve a neutrality that we had guaranteed. As to the claim that it was a matter of life and death for Germany to attack France through Belgium, Gottschen insisted that So it was a matter of life and death for the honour of Britain that she should keep her solemn engagement to defend Belgian neutrality. If honour was lost, prestige dropped also. This would be followed by opportunistic rivals striking at the vulnerable empire. Moral weakness equated physical weakness. James Jaw was thus correct when he claimed that, quote, In order to understand the men of 1914, we must understand the values of 1914, and it is against these values that their actions can be measured. End quote. By understanding these values, historians can best understand the actors, be they statesmen or the media, that contributed either in bringing the country toward or attempting to bring it back from war. Indeed, other historians have recognised the scholarly profit that results from the investigation of honour, with one even investigating the concept as a factor in Britain's decision to declare war a second time in 1939. The passion with which British people spoke of honour, the reverence in which they held it and the fear that surrounded any ideas of losing it, all point to a concept that possessed an underrated level of influence during the era. 
honour certainly had its detractors, but this dissertation has proved that it was nonetheless a concept of considerable impact, the numerous layers of which historians have yet to finish unravelling. Having listened to my dissertation, I hope you will now feel somewhat convinced that the Code of Honour, something which, let's be honest, you hadn't really given much thought to before, was an important factor in Britain's decision to make war in late summer 1914. It was only after completing this dissertation that I really began to appreciate just how important the Code of Honour was to Britain, as well as Europe. The fear of incurring shame and the equation that shame equals weakness equals war equals catastrophe drove many British statesmen to argue for a certain course from the beginning. The media's portrayal of events is another important thing to consider. Without The Times or The Manchester Guardian providing different perspective and debates about what honour meant, it would have been far harder for the British people to actually relate the circumstances of the time to themselves. Not to mention it would have been far harder for historians and enthusiasts like us to appreciate the divide. The transformation of British society from anti-war to pro-war is one of the most remarkable, yet underappreciated transformations of its kind in modern history. This is due to a number of factors, foremost among them being that, once the war had been declared and the cause commended as just, referring back to the pre-war divisions was a less than convenient exercise. And divisions did exist in spades. One thing that strikes me about 1914 Britain is just how much it seemed politically unprepared for war, and how much emotionally charged arguments propelled it towards war nonetheless. Belgium, of course, gave the government a heaven-sent opportunity to unite its populace, but before then we also saw moral-based arguments that were designed to evoke emotional responses and draw commitments from various camps based on no more than ideological beliefs and perceptions of how the world worked. Ireland accepted and approved of the war because most interpreted it as a war in defence of the independence and rights of small nations in the face of a larger, stronger power, something Irish men and women knew all too much about. Irish people fought for their enemy of the past few centuries because they believed in the importance of supporting the other little guy. The moral arguments were so appealing and effective that a possible catastrophe was averted and an empire on the brink of chaos agreed upon the task of war. This was no small feat. We have to remember how important public opinion was to the British government also. This was why Sir Edward Grey felt compelled to appeal to the better nature of the British people on the 3rd of August 1914. And even here, he wasn't armed with all of the facts about what was happening in Belgium, and he wouldn't be until that evening. Grey understood the importance of getting the British people on side. To do this, he didn't make grand speeches about British military power or the need to move in on German markets. Instead, he focused on more emotive issues. Could Britain abandon France when she had promised to defend her coasts? Could Britain abandon Belgium when she had signed a treaty to protect her? Would the world still look at Britain the same way if she hesitated in the face of a foreign challenge? The pre-war messages are full of statesmen, in Grey's camp and elsewhere, claiming that Britain would act only if public opinion compelled or allowed it. 
By manipulating his audience like this, and the Times did it as well, Gray recast the war to come in good and evil terms. He remoulded the issues into purely emotional concerns that would captivate his listeners. The war, the people were told, was not about anything other than Britain upholding its centuries of tradition and coming to the aid of the disadvantaged power. Britain, as she had done before, was merely playing the part of the good Samaritan, who saw the plight of Belgium and had to act. What I found particularly incredible was the use of the French coast's arguments. In 1912, when the French and British had divided the seas into spheres of influence, with Britain electing to defend the North Sea and near Atlantic, and France the Mediterranean, some argued passionately that this was a step too far, and that Britain was placing herself in a position where she would have to aid France in wartime, whether she wanted to or not. The Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary made repeated statements to the contrary and assured their audiences and political rivals that Britain was under no obligations to France whatsoever, where the issue of the now undefended French coasts were now concerned. The whole debate cast a huge shadow over what the Foreign Secretary was really doing and what Britain was really obliged to do with respect to France, despite his assurances and those of Herbert Asquith. Once it became clear that these coasts may come under attack by a Germany seeking to wage a total war against its neighbour, Grey and others sought to renege on previous agreements and argue that Britain was now obliged to act. Incredibly, he was able to do this because, despite the lack of written treaties compelling Britain to support France militarily, it was now suggested that, all this time, France had been expecting British support. In other words, the French had interpreted the Coast's Agreement differently, yet Britain was now compelled to support her, despite her misinterpretations, because British honour was at stake, and if Britain reneged on French expectations, then she would be letting down her friend. Little wonder that the anti-interventionists tore this argument to shreds. But it struck a chord with the average citizen, because of the moral undertones that the argument possessed. Yes, the French had been mistaken in their expectations, but... Should they now have to suffer annihilation because of it? The Belgian card was by far the most valuable and effective that the interventionists were able to play. The fact that they were concerned about Belgium's intentions to resist the Germans at all should come as something of a surprise. But it is striking also for the purpose of this dissertation that Belgium's argument for total resistance revolved around the preservation of its national honour. Submit to the German terms of de facto temporary vassalage, in other words, and Belgian honour would be a thing of the past. National honour was thus neither an imaginary nor purely British issue. It was aggravated by the embodiment of the state within the statesman, or, to put it another way, when a British ambassador or cabinet minister was slighted, Britain was slighted also, because that individual, in a sense, was Britain and demanded respect. He could argue that the British rep was just taking it personally, but he would argue that, if his counterpart was willing to disrespect him knowing what country he stood for, where would such disrespect in international relations end? It should be added that questions like these have been a constant of diplomatic relations well before 1914. But the point is that they reached their pinnacle in the First World War thanks to the Code of Honour. The stakes were too high to play with, but the fact that one's honour was on the line 
that the prestige and reputation of one's state were at stake meant that gentlemen, aristocrats, and egotistical statesmen stood in the way of rational conversation. If I stood down, the argument went, then my political counterpart and his state would win, and I would lose face and incur shame. Such considerations explain much of the psyche of the 1914 statesmen, from the reluctance to stand down as mobilizations escalated, to the refusal to contemplate a humiliating peace, despite impending national doom. Britain's decision to enter the war stands as one of the most significant, perhaps the most significant, of the 20th century. We know already how much literature has covered its events, but hopefully now you can appreciate that alongside all of the other reasons for war lay a complex underlying system of ideals that appealed to the romanticist more so than the strategist. Understanding the psyche of the actors that led Britain to war is as important an exercise as examining the other pertinent factors that created the material and strategic circumstances that proved ideal for world war. The best way to place ourselves in the shoes of the men that made the decisions in 1914 is to understand their concerns, whether we agree with those concerns or not. We may not believe today that the loss of reputation results in an automatic river of declarations of war as everyone seeks to take advantage, but the important thing is that we accept that the statesmen of 1914 did. To what extent this made war inevitable is, of course, debatable, and the Code of Honor itself requires greater examination and study, in my view. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Before we can fully appreciate its impact. Perhaps with enough study we can unravel the layers that constituted the 1914 Code of Honor. In the meantime, it suffices to note that its significance has thus far been highly underrated. And my sincere hope is that this mini-series has shone a refreshing new spotlight for you, the listener, on this and many other aspects of the First World War. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you very soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. 
One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 